0: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
1: In a sudden flash it all comes clear. It's a Eureka moment and epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to History Hacks, dedicated second World War air power podcast hedgehogbing. With me, Matt Bone. We've got an exciting episode for you today because we're heading east and west at the same time. Um, we're going to be talking about the Aleutian IL 2, the Stormanic, the flying tank of the Eastern Front. Renowned for its armored protection and massive punch, the IL 2 was a vital cog in both the Red Army and Red Navy's push to Berlin. Tens of thousands of them were built. And the Stormovic's legend is such today that flight sims are built around it, and she regularly tops people's top 10 lists of World War aircraft. But today we are going to be talking about an IL-2M in particular, whose new home is in the furnace that is the Pima Air and Space Museum in Tucson, Arizona. As a chat about it, I'm delighted to welcome Scott Marchand, who's the executive director of the museum and joins us now. And like me, is a Calgary boy in exile.
3: Hey Matt, nice. To, yeah, nice to nice to join you, and appreciate you coming on board. And yeah, it's a funny small world. Uh, you know, born and raised in Calgary, and tromped around the world, and uh, did some school in St. Andrews, and then uh, a couple jobs, and wound up down here about 20 years ago. At a much lower level in the organization, and then been able to work my way to the top. And it's been a, a fabulous journey. And I couldn't imagine having landed in a, a better place to uh, cultivate a professional career. It's uh, every day is fresh and different. And of course, you get to do exciting and mentally challenging things like this.
2: Well, we'll try not to challenge you too much. (laughs) Let's start by talking about the sort of history of the aircraft itself. And then we'll talk about your particular, your the museum's Sure. IL-2 and the museum as well because besides the uh, storm of it, you've got some amazing toys that I I want to ask about a bit later we're going to we're going to start with the Russian so yeah. the IL-2 is an interesting aircraft what, what what was the idea behind it and when when did she come about
3: yeah well so you know it, it's it's similar to the west you know the 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 Russians were experimenting with all sorts of aircraft designs doctrinal concepts you know there's a lot of high-minded thinking about aerial war fighting going on in the Soviet Union and and much the way it was in the West, uh, evolving new tactics, doctrines, and, you know, trying to figure out ways and means of of adapting and using uh, the technology that the aircraft designers and engineers were coming up with. You know, the Russians or the Soviets, the Russians started, um, started working on, on the sort of omnibus notion of, of of a ground attack aircraft as early as 1932, and over the course of that period from 1932 to 1939, there were about two dozen independent um, designs for ground attack aircraft being generated by various uh, Soviet design bureaus, aircraft factories, the the Russian Air Force. Um, um, and a lot, and the the impetus for that need really um, was pushed and driven by uh, Russian pilots that were returning from the Spanish Civil War, who had been, of course, flying against uh, the fascist forces, and they, you know, and the radas had been involved with, you know, ground support and whatnot, and then found them, you know, woefully inadequate for the task, as the well as the ratas were for most anything, um, but. Um, so that 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 pushed pushed things along, and um, in um, oh in the February of nineteen thirty eight, Sergei Luchin, who at the time was the head of design at uh, uh, Factory uh, Number Thirty Nine, um, he proposed to the Soviet military leadership the need for a quote unquote a flying tank, right? Sort of in response to these conversations he had with um, uh, returning Russian pilots from Spain, and. And he very optimistically um, represented that he could have it ready for acceptance trials by November. Um, so after a little bit of going back and forth uh, in early May, the uh, the proposition was approved and uh, the Air Force Development Ministry um instructed them to develop three different designs um, using the same engine, right? So they were asking for three prototypes um, designed to meet certain combat and operational specifications. And they started off with the the AM-34 engine, which um, um, was made by the McCoolin company. So it basically, you know, Soviet aircraft nomenclature um, and the design bureaus and the equipment um, is pretty, Pretty chaotic at times. I mean it, it makes sense in some ways, but it makes the US Navy look uh, look sensible in the way <laughs> they've uh, um, so um, the 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 Russian engine, so the, the McCullen is noted by the AM designation, and the, the the number is basically the evolutionary sequence of the engine, like the 34 series of to the 35, under the 36, 37, and so and so forth, right? And there'd be um, suffixes appended to the engine types depending on accessories was it a high altitude engine low altitude engine boosted supercharged or you know various things like that so the initial um, design concept that uh that this, this competition was was designated the bsh am 34 frn and um the engine was so- shortly after substituted to the 35 series engine so what the Russian Air Force was looking for was, was a fully enclosed, heavily armored, dedicated ground attack aircraft. So the initial series of engines actually had been supercharged and, and their performance was optimized for high altitude. Um, so they were really kind of deficient. So they, they very shortly substituted for an unsupercharged engine. It was generating about 1300 horsepower. So the first prototype, um, you know, this, this this BSH-2 right out the gate it underperformed in almost all objective parameters that have been laid out for it. Um, so the, the Russian Air Force, the Soviet Air Force demanded that um, modifications be made to this prototype. So it met the design specifications um, and sort of coincidentally, independently or collectively, and it's not really clear from the records, uh, the, the Air Force and illusion both decided to um, uh, delete, the rear gunner's cockpit. So the, the Sturmbravek prototype was originally designed as a fully enclosed, fully armored uh, two-crew, uh, two-cockpit. So that was that was basically deleted to um, cut weight, work with the center of gravity, engine performance, um, acceleration. You know, it was one of the doctrines at the time was this idea that it was going to be a really fast aircraft and that it would be relatively invulnerable to fighter attack. It could sort of... Um, Get its way in and out of a fight. Um, the presumption with the with the Soviets was that um, they wouldn't be subjected to rear or above attacks by fighters. <laughs> so, um, you know, very very optimistic. So, so what they did is they deleted that position and they instituted a, an engine change from the Mikulin 38 series engine, which had you know 400 more horsepower. So we're getting the 1700 horsepower range, which uh, you know allowed them to. Um, you know, get, get everything sort of back on back on track, and and by mid October the um, uh, the redesign was was ready for, for flight, and uh, the trials began on October second, nineteen thirty eight. Um, you know, a few other compounding changes were made that would be continue to be made on the airplane um, over the course of its um, course of its uh, adoption and production and, and deployment. You know, so one thing to sort of like a a sidebar note here is with with, with the Sturmovik, with a lot of the Russian aircraft. Unlike in the West where there was sort of a methodical documentation of redesign and sort of conscious backing and forth uh, a lot of the, the the Russian redesign and implementation of changes um, was done in a much looser more organic fashion in a response to the operational tempo of the demand of the Russian front um, they didn't really have the you know the they'd modify things on the production lines they would um um, they would adapt materials available locally um there you know um talk about some of the production challenges in a few minutes but what i'm kind of getting at is there's there there are literally volumes in russia that are hundreds of pages long that document all of the incremental changes all of the you know the the dead end evolutionary sidebars, like experimentations with radial engines, um, all of the fussing on what sort of armament combination to to settle on. And so yeah, there's there, there's three hours worth of, of, of pedantic engineering discussion there. So I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna gloss over a lot of that because it's not really pertinent to what we're doing here. In, in these October uh, 38 trials, um, you know some of the some of the changes made to to the the, the prototype that you'll see. Becoming very notable visual characteristics of the aircraft as it evolves, um the engine was moved forward uh, about two inches. There was five degrees of aft wing sweep, and about three percent more vertical stabilizer area was uh, introduced one of the the big challenges that the the Sturmovic faced in its in its genesis phase was uh his longitudinal stability was was really shitty you know and 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 um they were always working against um you know, center of gravity, like even minor changes in location of equipment and, and crew weight, um, you know, would destabilize aircraft pretty quickly. So there was a, there was a, there was a challenge that plagued the Sturmberg well into the early parts of the war. And at this point too, the, the armor shell was only between four and eight millimeters thick, um, you know, around his hole. Well. So I don't know, what's that in fractions? I don't know, something between you know, something around nine sixteenths of an inch or something, Um, you know, substantial. Um, You know, so this is, so at at this point too, some of the really remarkable and and distinctive design choices of the Sturmovik are very obvious, right? So uh, one of the key things that the Russians did was they buried the radiator inside the fuselage and they they brought the cooling air over the top of the engine in front of the pilot and ducted it through sort of an S-curved, duck down into the radiators below and the radiators were armored they had armored louvers Um, that that cluster under the belly of the Sturmovik was always one of its vulnerable areas no matter how much armor they put there with with the radiator and uh, and the the oil pump they were all sort of clustered in the same let's say Half square meter of aircraft in that area. So uh, German anti-aircraft gunners learned pretty quickly that uh, uh, if you could catch a, a Sturmovik at a low angle, banking away from you, uh, quick squirt into the belly—you know, roughly there—was was was a pretty surefire way to bring them down. Um, so, as the course of these trials, the 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 armor was was increased in size to about 10 millimeters. What really sealed the fate of integrating. Um, a rear gunner at this point was uh, there was a lot of concern for protecting the fuel and and the pilot. So the the main fuel tank for the for the Sturvivic was located right immediately behind the pilot. It was a giant, a couple hundred gallon um, rubberized uh, tank. So immediately behind that, they put in a twelve millimeter thick piece of uh, armored steel, and you know it was right around the center of gravity for the airplane. So there wasn't really much ability to move stuff aft too easily. Um, now this this armored shell is really remarkable. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of tendency in the West for people to think that, you know, the the Russian, the Russians were crude. It's a fair criticism from the standpoint of finished aesthetics of a lot of their equipment. Right. Um, you know, in the West, we spent a lot of time making Spitfires very elegant, you know, you know, the Shermans a really attractive tank, you know, the, um, you know but but the the Russians they put the energy where it mattered and they didn't worry about the cosmetics too much right but the the sturmovik was made out of very very high grade steel you know when we were when we were restoring our airplane um, there's a lot of the uh, we had uh, parts of the cowl that had cracked um as a, as a consequence of its ditching on, on on the frozen lakes the rapid cooling of the steel resulted in, in cracks so we, we we got a pretty talented uh, volunteer who, who here's a very very um, very competent welder and it's um, so of course to know what sort of you know, um, material he needed to to weld the aircraft. Um, he needed to identify the alloys and whatnot. Of course, we didn't really have much in the way of documentation that. So he took a, took a fragment and a sample and uh, went off and did some research and, and some testing and through various cognitive uh, feats of magic, he came back and said, oh my God, do you have any idea what kind of material we're working with here? I said, well, no, that's what you're looking up for. So he goes, well, let me put it this way: This is eight thousand psi pressure steel. This is basically the same grade of steel that the U.S. built its submarine hull during the Second World War. Wow! So um, he was he was pretty impressed, and uh, you know, there you go. So you know, the Russians put a lot of uh, they had clever engineers, and you know, in a lot of cases, you know, good enough was good enough. But this 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 monocoque, this is well, no, it's not a monocoque, but this armored shell that was unique to the Sturmovic um, was a tricky bit of, of manufacturing, right? So it, the, 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 the foundries were pressing panels out of, uh, with, with, you know, hundred ton um, punch presses and, and draft presses and draw presses. And then skilled welders were tasked to weld all these sections together and, and, and build it up, you know, cause it's, it's the bar it's the, the there is, there's no longer on in the airplane. Most aluminum built aircraft have this, this framework um, that, uh, you know, cowl panels and bits and pieces are riveted to or fastened to. Um, and the Sturmvik's not like that. The armored cowls are the shell of the airplane. They, they, they interlock with half turned tabs and it goes together like a big Meccano set. So it's, so it's, it's really easy to get apart to, to work on in the field,
2: easy to assemble But the whole, it's one great big, massive thing, right? It's quite a departure from what yeah you know, a Western air, airplane not would be used to when it when it when it comes apart is it's it's essentially a s- submarine. It's all all the structures going into the curve.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and sort of the peripherals, you know, like the the, the aft fuselage and the wing the wing panels um, uh, at that time uh, were were made from wood until the end of the war. The the fuselage continued to be made out of wood as did the vertical stabilizer. Um, there was discussions about introducing metal fuselage kits, but by that time they were already contemplating the IL-8 and the IL-10 designs as it asked, screw it, we'll just, you know, um, we'll just wait until the next generation of aircraft come along to, to go all metal. The introduction of of metal wings, um, haphazardly in nineteen late nineteen forty three, you know, increased the survivability of the airplane. Um, it made a lot of the armaments more effective because one of the problems with wooden wings too is you know when you're you know you're launching the RS eighty two or RS one thirty two rockets. I mean they're not big rockets. They're just sort of two kilogram warheads versus you know Western age that were what forty seven pounds or something twenty five kilograms. You know like orders of magnitude larger. And you know, the 23 millimeter cannons in the wings and it it, it still, you know, it, it, it put a lot of stress on on the wood. The wood was vulnerable to anti-aircraft fire. Um, so you know, they were they, they were shedding wings pretty easily. The damage was was severe and not easily field repaired, you know, so they would, you know, have sets of wing panels um, at maintenance areas and, and just replace them rather than repair damage. So the the metal wings increased the effectiveness of of, of the Sturmovik, made them stronger. Uh, combat survivability was increased. So, um, but it's um, you know the it was constructed. At the outer limits of probably the production capacity of the Russians at the time, and you see this across the armaments industry, right? They were drafting huge numbers of completely untrained and in often cases illiterate peasants into these factories to assemble fairly complex pieces of equipment under the supervision of, you know, one or two people that could read the instructions, um, and they threw themselves at it with great gusto. But you know, when you're making concessions, um, you know, if you've got a if you've got a civilian population that's really handy with woodworking. Those are skills you exploit, you know, um, versus spending time teaching a whole bunch of people how to rivet, cut aluminum, and and and, and shape, it and that kind of thing. So, um, uh, where it was essential to to engineer and build it with with craft, it was done, and where they could compromise, they did.
2: I think the the shape of the aircraft is pretty familiar to everybody. So we're sort of looking more or less from rear of the rear gunner back is is all wood. Yes. I bring that up because the, the sort of common conception of this flying tank is this is a big, all armored, all yeah, all armored, all all metal, all the time sort of thing.
3: <laughs> you know, the gunners weren't particularly enthusiastic about it. And you know, and, and, and despite the legend, you know, the Russians weren't well, I mean, they were certainly proficient and, and, and certainly callous and expedient, but, you know, they did give consideration to the survivability of their crews. I mean, they'd, they'd invested time and energy in training them. And, um, you know, the, the Sturm of the Gunners ultimately proved their value and their worth with many of them becoming aces. Um, and, um, you know, so there was, you know, and, and and the crews formed a real, you know, strong bond too. You know, they flew together as, as regularly as possible. Um, you know, so there was some desire to protect them. And there were plans to try and extend the Armored Monocoque, but again, it introduced uh, center of balance problems, power, uh, you're compromising payload, fuel load. Um, and, you know, the, there was a lot of concern about introducing too many, significant changes you know in 1943 or 44 would disrupt production and you know we'll touch on the uh <laughs> the threat that stalin issued about production of stromavik so nobody was really well you know maybe this is the time to you know to just maybe throw that in though so um you know not long after the invasion and then and, and there's the you know the germans were approaching moscow in in, in the fall of 1940 there um these factories were being evacuated from the area to the, you know, the Urals, out of reach of the Russians, or out of the reach of the Germans. Sorry, and um, so it was a complete, it was a complete shambles, and they hadn't really fully refined uh, the production techniques either. In the context of the Soviet Union at risk of being conquered by the Germans, <laughs> Stalin uh, sent a, a telegram to the directors of um, the the Sturmovic production plants that. Basically, in translation reads, you have let down our country and our Red Army. You have the nerve not to manufacture IL-2s until now. Our Red Army now needs IL-2 aircraft like the air it breathes, like the bread it eats. Schengpen produces one IL-2 a day and Tretchikov builds one or two MiG-3s a day. It's a mockery of the country and the Red Army. I ask you not to try the government's patience and demand that you manufacture more IL-2s. This is my final warning. Stalin.
2: That's not that's not the, the letter you want to get in the post in the morning of your coffee. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it doesn't leave any room
3: for interpretation. Right. So so what they're touching on there is, um and we we sort of skipped forward on some of the development. But um, you know, I don't know that it's that pertinent to, you know, to, to backtrack a bit. But you know, at the point of the Russian or at, at, the, at the point of, at the point of the German invasion of Russia Operation Barbarossa, there were no Sturmoviks at frontline units. At all, and there were actually only 18 of them in the Soviet Air Force in the field, and only five of them were serviceable. And they actually didn't go into service until five days after um, the invasion of Russia had begun. Uh, when a when a flight of five of them attacked column of uh, of soft skin German vehicles advancing through through central through central Russia, so it was it was consequential. And over those you know subsequent months you know, the, the Russian production capacity just, just wasn't there. It's hard to imagine at at this stage, you know, so we've, got 18 Sturmoviks in, in the Air Force, and only a handful of them operationally capable, that by the time the end of the war came um, in May of 45, 36,183 Sturmoviks had been manufactured, um, making it the most produced military aircraft in history. Um, and if you roll in the IL-10 production, uh, you're coming in just shy of 42,000 aircraft between 1941 and 1948. Um, and, and this is this is multiplied across different aircraft types and and tanks and artillery pieces and small arms. I mean, it's and and to be fair, I mean we did this all in the West too. You know, tens of thousands of of, of Spitfires, Hurricanes. You know, nineteen thousand B twenty four Liberators. You know, and and this is all sort of in the same period. I mean, the you know the the total war. Really didn't kick into high gear until you know the Russian invasion and and the uh, Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor and bringing the Americans in and you know 1942. So you know this the you know the real real high intensity segment of the war was sort of late 41 through the end of 1945. And you know that's when the scale of, of of industrial production across the planet just went into overheated overdrive. And it's and, and it's almost impossible for us to imagine you know especially in the modern era when. Well, wow, what are we looking at? Charitably, twenty-five years development of the F 35s <laughs> and then still not a full operational let, wing. Let's
2: let's let's, so, let's not talk know. about the F thirty-five. That just makes everybody cross. <laughs> let's, let, let's not. yes. <laughs> but anyway,
3: you know, back to back to more cheerful topics like the Russian yes. front.
2: You start looking at the numbers, especially on the Eastern Front, and you know, thirty thousand IL twos made. You could trace the line just back to an angry telegram, couldn't you? Because you, you, yeah. you, re- you yeah. really would. No, knowing the boss as as they all did, you did as you were told, pretty sharpish. And having to quickly move factories back, you know, strip out what you need, yeah. rebuild them much further back into um, into the east into Siberia, th- those sort of areas that were out of reach. And then, as you said, get people who knew. Sort of what they were doing, and people who didn't know what they were doing to start producing these aircraft by the tens of thousands. It is a remarkable achievement, even even within the the, the, the slightly jaded look we may look at it from the west.
3: Yeah, you know, like well, most people were interested in history. I mean, you 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 get tapped into the stuff that excites you. I mean, um, my interest started at a very early age growing up in Calgary. I mean, as a as a kid in the seventies, and we're surrounded by. Veterans who, want to think back at her, like roughly my age now, early 50s. Um, you know, my next bar neighbor was a, a policeman that he'd gone ashore on D Day with the Calgary Highlanders, and uh, the, the guy the next rover was you know, uh, a Lancaster navigator, and and uh, you know, um, just up and down the street, right? You know, everybody's uncle had, you know, my, 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 my boy scout leaders were, you know, uh, Highlanders and it's you know, war stories left, right and center, you know, and down the road from where I was growing up in Calgary was the, uh, uh the Naval reserve unit. They had a sea fire and a sea fury parked on the grass out in front there. And, you know, when the weather was nice in the summer, the the commissionaires down there would let us, you know, go play in the cockpits and, and mess around in the airplanes. And, uh, um, you know, it just, it sets, but you know, your, you know, your whole focus and emphasis growing up and especially in the cold war era was to really kind of um, dismiss, you know, what happened in the, in the East other than to talk about Stalingrad and Kursk and a few things like that. But, um, you know, having gotten older and into this job and, and, and really sort of propelled by the IL2, you know, really, you know, gone fairly deeply into learning about the, the, the war in the East. And it's, you know, statistically it's mind-boggling i mean i I, you know i'm sure even a lot of the people that you have on your podcast or that the girls talk to you know don't totally comprehend the differential scales of of what was going on you know you know we're going to touch on curse later so we can talk about some of that you know separately but um you know just for one sort of comparative contextual statement right so at the point of the kickoff of kursk on july 3rd 1943 there were 10,300,000 german soldiers in in the army active army at that point of that number only 2.7% were involved in active operations against the anglo-western allies <laughs> you know <laughs> and you know from from d day to the fall of germany there were about 5 million allied soldiers into um into, into into western europe and you know that's slightly less than what the german army and the russians engaged at kursk for 2 months you know so it's it's um it, it's unreal
2: looking at the conflict as a whole the numbers never quite stack up in your head because you can't really visualize numbers that big even, even when you you know you travel to normandy and you you see those i said that were beautiful gra- graveyards but you just get a scale of um, you know ten thousand here and, and so but then you have to up that again and again and again just you know just in the eto and then you go to the east and then that number gets okay. you, you can't we don't have a frame of reference for those sorts of numbers anymore. I don't think.
3: Yeah, it, it, it's really abstract. I mean, I, I, I know I'm paraphrasing, but it's kind people say, "Well, you know, you know, one or two murders is a tragedy, and a million is a statistic." You know, yeah. and um, you know, fortunately, as time has moved on, we've become much more conscious of the value of human life and our fellow man. I mean, you know, we're just coming out of twenty years' involvement in the Middle East in conflict, and you know, the you know the the casualty figures. You know, for that twenty years, in some cases, don't even reflect a day or two's operation on the Western Front in World War One, or a normal, a quiet day in Russia would see more casualties. You know, another number that's been thrown around this year, just sort of give it some context, is, you know, in, in the in the United States here, there's been over six hundred thousand uh, deaths attributed to, to COVID nineteen. That is more than the total war time dead that the entire united states has suffered since 1776 uh we quite rightly recognize and revere and 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 remember you know um you know the people that put down their lives for the country but i know we we don't seem to have the same reverence for each other
2: there's a there's a perspective issue there which is terrifying and interesting all at the same time yeah
3: yeah there really is Anyway, so on with the... Uh, yeah, let's get back to the planes. On with the show,
2: yeah. <laughs> I guess from sort of ni- 19, 1942, we're really starting to see the aircraft coming into its own, being produced in numbers, yeah. being delivered to frontline units in numbers. Yeah. We're going to start probably focusing on the on, on the M variant because that's, that's the one you mm-hmm. guys have. So what what mm-hmm. what has been done since those early production ones to what is really the the sort of the most the most known perhaps of of, of the, the
3: yeah so the most known the most typical i guess the most typical example of the stormovik in in 1943 would be uh the the swept wing version um it's called called an arrow wing because it's you know it's it's got an aft sweep to the outer wing panels to increase longitudinal stability uh has been settled into two 23 millimeter cannons in the wings as well as two 7.62-millimeter machine guns in the wings, combinations of rocket rails on the wings, and either two or four combinations uh, for RS-82 and RS-132 rockets. The bombs were carried in an internal panel in the wing route with uh, breakaway doors very similar to the, the Bristol Blenheim. They were uh, wooden doors that were spring-trap loaded, and the bombs just sort of dropped through the door. The... Bombs knocked the door out of the way, the springs closed the door, and on you went. Um, Stirlwix carried about 400 kilograms of of bombs uh, on on missions, and they were lightweight bombs, 25 kilogram, 50 kilogram. They were fragmentation bombs, phosphorus bombs, um, armor-penetrating bombs. I mean, the... Rear gunner, they had settled on the Bergen UBT um, heavy machine gun, which is roughly equivalent to the Western Browning M2, uh, 50 caliber, Um, slightly shorter round, a little less um, ballistic punch, but um, still really, really pretty effective. So that's largely speaking with the vast majority of of, of the Soviet crews um, took into battle with them. And all of this was focused towards ground attack. You know the, the 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 rear gunner was defensive, but he was also eyes and ears and lookouts. Uh, they coordinated things, but the Russians also had very they evolved very sophisticated um, and effective tactics um, with respect to ground attack. So you know the air war in the east was very different from the air war in the west, which was done largely at high altitude or at night, uh, high energy. You know in, in in the east it was largely. You know, it was World War One style aerial fighting with with modern machines. You know, most of the fighting was heavily focused over the front. The objective was reconnaissance, uh, nuisance interdiction, and fighters were largely used to prevent reconnaissance and interdiction. <laughs> so, um, you know, most Sturmovik um, operations never penetrated more than about six miles or ten kilometers past the front lines. You know, they initially started off with. Uh, uh, small groups of, of three aircraft in a sort of an element flight element um, with three elements in a in a in an attack formation. Very quickly, um, they they added extra aircraft, so four, eight, and twelve. You know, very comparable to the west and to the to, and to the German tactics. You know, they would brief objectives, they would assign different roles to the different aircraft. Um, But they also had this sort of interesting view that, okay, if the objective was achieved with one or two aircraft, everybody else went free for all. Uh, Nobody came home with ammunition and the expectation was to kill Germans. To protect themselves and and to, you know, surprise their adversaries. um, Initially, you know, the Sturmvik operations were very low level, you know, under 500 feet, they would would head out. But, you know, what would, what was complicating there is, you know, you know from the prairies, you know, there's a there's a pretty bleak sameness to it, right? There, there's very few landmarks and when you're low down, you really lack perspective. And you know, most of the Russian steppe areas and and certainly, you know, the northern parts of the, the boreal forests are like that too. So they ended up actually using Pathfinder aircraft, usually SBs or PE2s uh, would fly at a higher altitude and communicate with the formation leaders and sort of walk them into the target area. And then um, when they were sort of lined up on whether it be field guns, columns, uh, troop concentrations, you have it, you know, that sort of release the storm and say, okay, you know, this compass heading off you go. And they would uh, do what was initially called like a zoom and climb attack, where they would, um, you know, come from 500 feet up to say three or four thousand feet, tip over into a, a fairly a fairly steep dive, uh, select their targets, conduct their attacks. If they still had ammunition, they'd come around and do it again. The the a crews never came from the target with more than one aircraft in the same direction. So part of their their zooming, you know, their their attack strategy. Was everybody to sort of scatter and come from different directions? So you were sort of sort of the opposite of um, a herd defense. This was the opposite of whatever herd defense is. You know, so you you would have so many random targets in random places that you would you'd hopefully make yourself less likely to be targeted target by by ground fire because when it was all stuff sort of, around, you know, who 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 do you task for target when you're when you're when you're the ground guy? Um, And, you know, later on, they evolved, you know, different tactics, you know, the the famous circle of death, um, they had, uh, you know, the S-turns, and they had scissor attacks. I mean, the scissor attacks were interesting because you'd have a pair of aircraft come in, and they'd line up their target, and then they would basically weave back and forth and then circle themselves in. They would conduct their, they would release their munitions at the outer arc and ellipse of the attack. And then they would sort of sweep in and at, at some point somebody would be vulnerable from you know from an, from an inline friendly fire attack. So you know they they got pretty pretty confident with those type of things. Um they would do like weaving S attacks where formation like four aircraft, you know, a leader would go in and he would start weaving an S down onto the, and and you know hitting targets on the way down, and then the following three aircraft would fall into the same formation. Famous Wheel of Death was really as much a, 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 a defensive, you know, very similar to a Luftberry circle, right? I mean, you'd have the the element of aircraft would fly into not even so much a circle, it was more of an ellipse, right? Um, but they would they would get into this sort of circular formation over the targets. And that would allow the aircraft behind to cover the aircraft in front. And in order, they would drop off. Number one would drop out of the circle. Down to lower level, attack as targets. Come up, join the circle. The next one would come down, drop and and, and attack, and and so forth. And um, you know, they became very effective at it. Uh, you know, the the attrition rate was high with Sturmoviks. I mean, fifty percent of the combat losses were to fighters, and fifty percent were to to ground, you know, the ground attack, and and that includes, you know. Missing and undetermined. I mean, plenty of them never came back. But it's pretty easy to spec, you know, to, to fill in the blanks. That well, you know, um, they were probably hit by ground fire, or they got intercepted by fighters. Now, you know, confirming which it was, mm-hmm, who knows? But um, the uh, the 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 loss and attrition rates were high. Um, but you know, the Russians were not completely. Well, they valued their comradeship,
2: right? I mean, you know, comrade, right? We 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 have this image of them being quite callous because of the numbers, yeah. But- You spent a lot of time training, training these people and building up a unit. You don't want that unit to be constantly replenished with newbies.
3: No. And then you're all in this fight together as as you know, Soviet citizens. Right. So, um, you know, I mean, one thing that was interesting that, you know, that, that, uh, come across a little while ago while I was reading is that it wasn't so much a standing order, but it was a standing practice that whenever practical, storm of a cruise would rescue each other, you know? So there's, you know, there's sort of a, a, a few famous, you know, Western incidents where, you know, somebody would land, you land their fighter and the guy on the ground would, you know, climb in under, you know, that, take off in the Spitfire or whatever and then get out of there but this was actually a fairly common practice with the server crews you know they would um, if, if, if a crew went down and they were clearly alive and the Germans weren't too far away and the field or roads nearby were um, worth taking a chance on uh, somebody in the element would land while the rest of them flew top cover and uh, they'd rescue the crews they would scramble in and take off and you know several you know several guys one uh, hero of the Soviet Union, you know, medals for these type of things. You know, one time, uh, one guy took off with like four extra crewmen crammed into their Sturmovik, and one guy basically hanging off the wing on, you know, clutching through the cockpit. The hero of the Soviet Union was roughly equivalent to the, you know, the Congressional Medal of Honor or the Victoria Cross. Uh, there were about 2,700 and change awarded during during the war. 800 and some of these were awarded to Air Force attack crews. So either, you know, largely Sturmovic pilots, um, but Pe 2 and people get ground attack, another 800 odd to fighter pilots and another, you know, that the balance to uh, tankers and infantrymen. So, um, you know, there was there was real esprit de corps. I mean, these were these were, um, you know, pretty dedicated
0: Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. People. The one that
2: usually pops to mind is Anna Yogeova, isn't it? The, uh... she 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 got 270 odd missions she she flew before she was she was captured i guess you we would call it a cosmopolitan bunch because it was it wasn't a certain strata of society that would go into the air force like it like it like it is in the west it's you kind of know the type that would end up in in aircraft whereas in in the red army it was very much aptitude based and reasonably gender blind not not completely but far more so than, than, than we had here.
3: Yeah. I mean, it was a large function of expediency and necessity too. I mean, any able body that could fight farm or, you know, work in a factory was, was pressed into that service. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's a lot of, you know, recent famous discussion of, you know, the, the Russian, uh, you know, the night witches, Mm -hmm. the, the dedicated um, female units, but um, you know, the female air crew were, you know, quite reasonably represented across the uh, the Soviet air force in this period. I mean, not in high numbers, but it wasn't uncommon for, you know, replacement pilots to come into, you know, a random fighter unit. There'd be a couple of women involved. Um, there were several very famous female Sturmova crews. There were plenty of mixed crews where there'd be female pilots, male gunners, uh, female pilots, male gunners, um, you know, and they, they they experienced quite a bit of success. Um, so it was, you know, You know, in many respects, you know that wartime experience of the Russians, um, the egalitarianism of the Russians, and you know to some extent it was sort of thumbing at the West culturally too. Um, I mean, let's face it, there's plenty of of sexism to go around in Russia and plenty of um, you know social stratigraphy. But um, you know, but women got a you know women got a real taste of combat in that era that um, um, hadn't really been well known in the West until comparatively recently. Mm. I mean,
2: several aces lots, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, there's, there's lots of fascinating stories there from, from that, but I, 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 think, I think that's another podcast. Um, because, <laughs> you yeah, know, we, we have to move along and we we can't yeah. we can't talk about this aircraft without mentioning Operation Cicero.
1: In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, the
2: the famous battle at Kursk, Yeah, which has been fascinating over the last few years with a lot of the reassessment, the aerial photography of, of, of it. And, you know, being a typhoon guy myself, knowing that a claim yeah. from the air is very different to an actual claim on the ground, but the, the air component of, of, of this insanely big battle is, mm-hmm. is absolutely fascinating because again, it's mind boggling numbers, but then it's just yeah. constant, constant air cover going into that salient, which was literally hell on earth wasn't it
3: oh yeah i mean that um again that that battle kind of boggles the mind um you know i have these still my possession from the 70s prinnell's history of the War and weekly digest and they're really quite superb because a lot of them were written by people involved at the time in the 70s you know so this the the, the kursk issue here was written by uh, a russian tank general who was who was involved in the battle but you know so to give you some idea of the lineup of the battle, you know, so Kursk was, what, July 3rd until the end of August forty three, um, and it committed, well, the lineup for the battle, um, you know, the, the Wehrmacht had 900,000 soldiers, uh, the Red Army had 1.3 Million. Uh, the The Germans had ten thousand artillery pieces. The Red Army had twenty thousand. The The Germans had twenty seven hundred tanks and assault guns. The Russians had thirty six hundred tanks and assault guns. Uh, the, the The Luftwaffe was fielding two thousand aircraft. The The VVS was fielding two thousand four hundred aircraft. Um, so of that twenty four hundred, fully a quarter were Sturmoviks, um, and you know they they undertook continuous missions across the, the course of the battle um, in the ways we described. But interestingly enough, um, the aerial interdiction in the battle of Kursk was not really as effective as you might've thought. Um, you know, uh, let me see if I can find, um, oh, what were we looking at here? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um we estimate that only 2.7% of the armoured losses in, in curse that the Germans suffered were attributable to aerial attack.
2: Which is, yeah. you know, which is remarkable. But interestingly, probably comparable to, say, you know, Goodwood or an Epsom on, 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 on the other side. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we come back to the, the massive inaccuracy of, of, of the weapons that they're dropping, you're dropping iron, iron weapons, even if you've attached a a rocket to the end of it, it's just going to go over there somewhere, not necessarily where you pointed it.
3: Yeah. And a lot of this was lightweight components and the Germans were introducing heavier, you know, heavier versions of tanks, you know, you know, Panthers were being fueled in large numbers. Um, Elephants, the assault guns have been reinforced. And then the, and the Russians were, dropping, like say, comparatively light and lightweight ammunition, you know, although there was um, a new aerial anti-tank bomb being used for the first time at Curse, it was basically a a shaped charge um, bomb of about a 25 kilogram. It was was fairly effective, but, you know, more so against things like, you know, uh, armored cars, half tracks, trucks. So, you know, and although the aerial attack didn't really account for much in the way of heavy armored losses, you can't dismiss the effectiveness and the utility of the aerial attack in their their collateral benefit. I mean, it wasn't tactically the intent because they were meant to destroy tanks, Um, but they were really, really great at, um, you know, pinning down Germans, um, you know, diminishing the effectiveness of of the panzer grenadiers and the infantry that were following up behind the armored spearheads, um, taking out soft skin vehicles, um, you know, really making resupply um, problematic. It was making battlefield evacuations of wounded problematic. Um, I mean, you know, on the Russian front, and especially in this battle, there was no respect for the Red Cross. I mean, if you were, <laughs> if if you were an adversary of either side, you were, um, uh, you were, you were, you were a fair target, it didn't matter, you know, what your what your condition was. So um, and so this so this ground attack was really effective in, in interdicting communications resupply logistics and uh hampered um the reinforcements and, and the effectiveness of the germans to um sustain their attacks um you know but i mean there's a whole host of other reasons why kursk was a failure for the germans and uh, um you know none of it's really attributable to the to the air campaign though so. no
2: um yeah But we like, we, 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 as airplane guys, we like to think it, think it does. Yeah. This 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 is, this is the thing that, you know, my hobby horse really is, you know, there's more than one way to knock out a tank. You know, you don't necessarily have to, to brew it up to remove its crew is a very polite way of of saying, Mm -hmm. killing, killing its crew, take its fuel away, take, you know, the resupply, you know, that, that's, as effective as anything and you know this this level of interdiction on the scale that it was going in yeah. just immediately well, taking removed... off
3: a track forcing them yeah. forcing into a mud or a soft spot right yeah. you know get it get it stuck in soft ground and what do you do yeah, exactly <laughs> Yeah.
2: so we're, we're going to race race ahead a little bit mm. because yes i want to talk about your your particular aircraft but look looking back yeah. looking back now the reputation of the aircraft, I think, especially in the last sort of twenty years as well, is it's been reevaluated and it's it's still seen as something quite remarkable, considering it's a metal box with wooden wings and a wooden tail.
3: Yeah, you know, and, and you know, <laughs> like all human nature. I mean yeah, the cervic even had its detractors in, in Russia. Um, you know, there's certain revisionism. I, I came across a, a quote from um, oh Clearly, somebody who 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 was no friend of Sergei Aleutian who said, "Wow, you know, yeah, he failed at designing a flying tank. Being charitable, they roughly created a flying uh, uh, light reconnaissance light armored vehicle, right? So, <laughs> you know, but the but the start of the crews were were very quick to defend it. I mean, a lot of them still had their lives, you know, because of the the protection and and." In the design of that aircraft, you know, so, um, well, like any aircraft and and everyone who crewed it, um, you know, the airplane you flew was the best plane that, uh, you know, that fueled it in the war, right? Yeah, <laughs> if it brought you home, it was the best. So
2: let's, let, let's, let's get very specific. I've, I've called her the, the Pima IL 2 in, in my notes, but your aircraft has quite a story behind it, and her, and her, and her journey to Tucson goes quite round the houses so why, why don't you tell us about her and, and and how she is today
3: yeah yeah so um we we've got a full restore and it's been out on display for well, about two years now um it was a several year project it it arrived here at the museum shortly before i did in in the early early 2000s and um it's one of these sort of weird serendipitous type of things and you know, i probably have to jump around in the narrative a little bit because it kind of unfolded in a haphazard fashion. Um in two thousand and one, um this woman walked into our front administrative office and asked to see one of the curators, and he came up and said she said, Oh Hey, my 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 dad uh, had a little aviation operation in California, and he passed away suddenly. And we've liquidated the company, and we've sold the Learjets jets and all the, the stuff. But in the back of the hangar was this junky old airplane that he was going to use as a as a project. And um, you know, we don't know what it is. We don't know what to do with it. Uh, she says, "I live in Tucson, and I you know thought of you guys here, and I uh, wondered if you guys might want it for for the museum because honestly, we could use a, a little bit of a tax offset against the estate." And uh, so she showed the pictures to her, to our curator. And he looked at it and said, Oh, yeah, we'll take that. I mean, he, he recognized that it was certainly significant, <laughs> if not immediately what it was. He says, shall I go do the paperwork now for you, ma'am? And she goes, Oh, that would be wonderful. We're on the way to the accountant. So I can take that with us and We can put this all to bed. So he ran off and got the donation paperwork done. And, um, a few weeks later, uh, A group of people from here went up to california to collect the airplane brought it back and it was in the storage building when i got here and in basically the condition as it was recovered from the lake and we really had no idea where it came from um we we knew the guy in california had purchased it in 1995 but we didn't know who he had purchased it from and i've subsequently been able to sort of piece together the most likely cat um, you know person um, one of whom is now actually a friend of mine he lives up in Phoenix and he's involved with uh, uh, the guys at Novosibirsk to fly their their Sturmovik he's one of their western agents for finding aircraft and uh, the guys he's... there helped us with our project a little bit but um, he and his partner uh, a guy named Jeet Mahal um, shortly after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, say between 1991 and 1994, uh, were very enterprising in exporting war material. Uh, you know, so of course at the time, you know, people weren't being paid, weren't being fed. There was kind of a not really a strong connection to to Russian or so- and especially Soviet history, despite the the consequences of the Second World War. So it was it was relatively straightforward to. Um, Get these things out of out of Russia for comparatively little money. Enterprise, um, we don't know how much they paid for our airplane, but we do know that it was recovered by the Russian Navy um, near Leningrad with the intent for it to be restored and put on display in the uh, naval museum in Leningrad. And Soviet Union fell; it was languishing in one of the storage yards there. Um, our our Western uh, entrepreneurs procured the airplane, shipped it out to month uh, into, into Quebec via Lithuania and um, sold it to this fellow in California in 1995. Um, let's see, we ended up with it. We stared at it for 10 or 15 years, really unsure what to do with it. I mean, you know, there's no blue drawings, there's no blueprints, there is nothing, there's no references other than like model kits and line drawings. And um, you know, the, the woodworking was was going to be a challenge, so you know we we'd contemplated just putting it out on display as a, like an archaeological relic and just sort of leave it at that. Well, you know, other things took precedent. And um, in about 2010, we had a National Geographic film crew out here doing a, uh, a, a piece on naval archaeology. And they, in particular, they were they were here because we had a Fritz-X German-guided um, munition here, an anti-shipping uh, bomb. And were, the story was particularly about the battleship Roma that was sunk by Fritz-X. So they were, they were out here talking about a Fritz-X. But they had actually brought along this rather eccentric and, and brilliant German um, aircraft enthusiast and craftsman. And what they did here in a restoration shop is they built a replica, basically a wooden replica of a Fritz X and then took it out to California and dropped it from a B-25 onto a paper replica of the Roma in the desert at Borrego Springs to, to recreate. So, so in the course of them doing this here for several weeks, we got to know the, the, the German craftsman pretty well. And um, you know, we were showing him around and, you know, we took him up in storage. He's like, Oh my God, you have a Sturmavec. And I'm like, well, yeah. And he says, Oh, why haven't you done anything with it and i explained well we don't really have information or means to do it and he goes well i can help you with that so uh several years later we got going i i secured some funds for it we cleared some room in in the restoration hangar and put it on the floor and it kind of became my baby and our collections manager's baby we we became really kind of you know the the detective work and the archaeological work was as interesting as sort of the the operational history of the airplane and um you know so we got swung into it and uh, the fellows in germany you know we contracted to do the the wood components for us because they'd done several before and i mean so credit to their skill so we we did a we did a template of the back area where the the gunners ring and where the where the wooden back uh fuselage would slip in because it goes in in little you know quarter inch sleeved area that they riveted through and bolted through and um you know we sent that off to him and he went off to one of the museums in czechoslovakia and you know did some dimensional measurements and climbed over theirs and um six months later get pictures okay it's done it's ready to go put in the container bring it over here so we got it over here and it fit like a glove it's there might have been an eighth of an inch variation where we had to temper you know, and follow a few things. And then once we got that done a few months later, um, he and his, uh, his assistant came over and uh, they rebuilt the wooden wings uh, for us here. And, um, you know, we, we tried to, you know, be as faithful as we could, but we, we made some concessions. Um, but, you know, we, he did actually bring over an awful lot of Russian, you um, birch plywood that was the same as would have been used originally. And we supplemented with a little bit of stuff locally for, uh, for wing spars and whatnot. But, um, um, you know, the, the, the wooden skin on, on on the Sturmvik is really pretty thin. It's basically door case thickness, three or four millimeter, um, two, three ply plywood, mm-hmm. um, over, um, over over plywood ribs that are basically skill saw cut, uh, jigsaw cut, um, and then wrapped in doped linen and, and, and shrunk for strength and then painted. Um, so it took us several years to do this, but over the course of the um, of, of the project, you know, we had no idea of the identity of the airplane. There was no documentation of it, and while we were cleaning it, we were being careful to see what we could find. Of course, we're you know pulling out arm loads of. of, of peat moss from, from the, from the fuselage in the cockpit and, uh, you know, little freshwater clam shells and skeletons of minnows and, um, buckets. We probably pulled out 200 pounds, 150 kilograms of peat from the, (laughs) from, from the airplane. And, but it was still covered in grease and oil from, you know, from when it was shot down. And, you know, we, we started washing it and degreasing it and using simple greening it through. And, um, in, in, so in this time frame, we'd we'd gotten in touch. So this is back, say, 2015, 2014. Relationships between the West and Russia were actually pretty convivial. So it was relatively easy for us to get in contact with people, and um, we got in contact with a guy who um, um, was sort of a, a Russian battlefield archeologist and aircraft recovery guy. And he was a big fan of the Sturmovik and um, we sent him pictures and he said, Oh yeah, well, I can, I can get you digital plans. I've been helping, you know, Boris and the guys at Vadim and I can, I can sell you the plans. So we, we bought, we bought the blueprints and digit, you know, as much material as we could from them and uh, got swung into action. And um, he says, you know, what their plane is. I said, well, no. He says, Oh, okay. Well, you know, look for numbers. So we found numbers here and there, and we'd send them, send them off to him, and he'd go, nope, 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 nope. So one day we're cleaning, and we're, we're fussing around, and on the upper aluminum cowl, stamped in sort of quarter-inch high letters, was the number 5612. Well, then we started finding 5612 handwritten paint and various things on the cowls and here and there and inside the, the landing gear leg and scratched on the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the firewall and, uh, huh? So we sent, well, does 5612 mean anything to you? And he goes, ah, you've discovered the identity. Five minutes later, we get his email from him with everything they know about the airplane. So they knew, they, they knew what the airplane was all along. They were just, Teasing it out of us, forcing us to discover what it was. They weren't about to make it easy for us. So suddenly we got this avalanche of information. We got we got pictures of the Russian recovery from the lake. We uh, you know documentation on the crew, some of their battle citations, the unit it was assigned to. So overnight we we magically learned that it was it was a fairly rare version. Um, so it was it was a it was a naval Sturmovik, and it was in the Leningrad pocket. And it was with the 7th Guards Assault Aviation Regiment um, of the Red Banner Baltic Fleet. So uh, its regular crew, best we can... Well, at least the guys that were in it, we will know, shot down, uh, was uh, Junior Lieutenant Andarilov Mark and uh, his gunner, Sailor uh, Leonid Grishnan. And um, they were shot down in this airplane on January 28th, 1944. And... That's an important date because that's the day after the siege of Leningrad was lifted. Um, this airplane was in the Leningrad pocket. So we subsequently learned that it had, um, left uh, probably factory 30, uh, in February, 1943, uh, went into the Leningrad pocket and was operational there for very close to a year. And when you look at the operational tempo of, of this, of this unit, so this, 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 Seventh Guards Assault Aviation Regiment, during its time in the Leningrad Pocket, flew 17,000 sorties. And it was a mixed unit of Sturmviks, um, PE-2s, lighter weight stuff. And they had a mixed role of uh, anti-shipping missions in the Gulf of Finland and the Baltic against the Germans, as well as um, interdiction behind German lines, um, trying to you know help lift the siege. They would do a lot of... Um, Anti-artillery work, so they would work with uh, artillery spotters on the ground. They get vectored in on German gun emplacements, and they would blast them and move on. So this airplane—it's um, it, kind of remarkable, you know, its its career. And and I'm I'm gonna my personal feeling is that of all the surviving World War II aircraft, this probably has the most combat time So combat time becomes a very sort of important thing for Western aircraft enthusiasts. So, um, but, you know, given that the, these these airfields were never more than eight or 10 miles from the front lines and, and the Russian operational tempo was basically, you know, if it could fly, it fought, right? So it wouldn't necessarily be the same crew, but if the airplane was serviceable, you'd rearm, regroup, you know, launch the airplane, easily a couple times a day, bad weather might keep it down, but you know, nice weather in the winter, you could probably conceivably be up 10, 11 sorties in a day. Um, you know, so just sort of rolling into a ball of wax, say, you know, this was, this was in with the unit for just shy of a year, 11 months. Um, let's knock off say 60 or 70 days for bad weather, maintenance, delivery, whatnot. So you're looking at 250 days of, of, of potential operational time. And let's just say, on average, they might have this airplane might have done three sorties a day, you're getting to 750 800 possibly more combat operations before it was lost. Um, it's, you know, the, the airplane is covered in battle damage, we were finding German eight millimeter rounds inside the, the, the cockpit. There was yeah. anyway, so. So what happened is The siege is is broken, the Germans are retreating, the the highway's open, and this unit is strafing Germans left, right, and center. Our airplane, while it was peeling off from attack, took uh, took ground fire and hit the belly, and it knocked out the oil pump on the back of the engine. So the airplane very quickly lost oil. seized up. Um, they ditched the airplane on a little lake called Lake Brebo, uh, which is, uh, just Southeast of, of Leningrad. Um, you know, probably a couple square miles, shallow lake, sort of typical prairie type of lake. And it sat on the, on the ice there. When the ice melted in the spring, it went through to the bottom of the lake and there it sat until, uh, the winter of 1992 when the Russian Navy reco- recovered it and made its way over here. It's, um, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable survivor. And, and I'm, I'm really thrilled that we're able to, you know, to give it a, give it a home and tangentially. So you look at the airplane, some of its design stuff, the, the armored fuselage, the ground attack design, um, you know, illusion design, things like the, the wheel pants for the, for the landing gear, you know, the, the wheel sticks out. So if you've seen a DC-3 you know, um, it's, it's, you know, sort of half the wheels hanging below the the, the cell, it's not fully retracted. Mm-hmm. Well, this was purposeful to to aid in recoverability of aircraft if they ditched. So if they landed it, you wouldn't, you know, rip out the bottom of the airplane and the radiator. So you could theoretically recover the airplane repair and put it back into service. You know, there's, there was some experimentation with redundant elevator and and uh, rudder controls on the Sturmovic. So, you know, in case of battle damage, you'd have, you know, multiple sets of linkages. I mean, it didn't go very far, but several hundred were built with that literally across the street from my office is, is, the, is the spiritual home of the A-10 Warthog. They've been here since 1976. It's the main training base, probably 20 or 30 flights a day go over my head. When you start looking at the design of the A-10 and you contrast it to the Sturmavec, you can see very clearly where the Fairchild engineers Took wholesale concepts from Sergei Aleutian's design and incorporated them into the A10, and made it one of the most effective ground attack and uh, uh, aircraft in history. So you know, it's it's fun to have that here.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> you have some fantastic neighbors, haven't you? Because you've got you got Davis-Monthan just over the road, and then you've got the Boneyard. You, you've got mm-hmm. you've got a lot of toys around. Oh yeah, we've got the one
3: sixty-second uh, Air National Guard Wing here with F16s. There's. Uh,
2: yeah, it's um, well.
3: Again, when you talk about contrast, I mean, you and I both being Canadians, so you know, you know the the size of the Canadian Air Force. Um, well, the para rescue unit here has more Hercules in its unit than the entire Canadian Air Force does. So, you know,
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, but but before we start talking about about yeah. that, let's because I I think you guys did something really really special when when you rolled the aircraft out because mm-hmm. the the IL two is most likely the most, as we were saying before, the most produced combat aircraft in in history. So you paired it with a couple other aircraft, didn't you?
3: Yeah, we did. So we're we're unique and fortunate. Um, We've got a Boeing uh, 737-300 here. So the 737 is the most produced commercial aircraft in history so far. Um, And the Cessna 172 is the most produced civil aircraft in history so far. So I think 48,000 copies of it and about 7500 uh, 737. So when we when we rolled out the Sturmovic, we took the opportunity to bring all three of them together in a line and get a photograph of the 172, the Sturmovik and the 737 all, all lined up in a row. So we, you know, we had hey, we had the unique opportunity to bring
2: the, the three
3: most produced commercial military and civil aircraft in history together for one family, family picture.
2: That's brilliant. It's, it's a wonderful picture and I'd urge everybody to have a quick Google of it because it's three very, very different aircraft, but again, remarkable numbers of, of, of the lot and only the 172 yeah. topping it really so, Um yeah yep. I, I'm, I'm, I'm keen because as I've got you, I'm going to ask you, because yeah. I, I, I made the silly mistake of, of, on mm. my day off when I was in Phoenix on business to, to play golf at, at TPC yep. and not come down mm. and visit you guys, wow. which was stupid yeah. especially when you see my scorecard for that day <laughs> um tell us a little bit about about the museum what what you've got going on and i'm i'm gonna geek out on some of some of your some of your aircraft yeah. in a minute but oh you bet yeah
3: so i'm proud to say that without shame i will make the assertion that we are probably one of the easily one of the top five air and space technology museums on the planet um top five okay
2: they- top three would be bragging
3: yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm gonna I I'm i am I'm gonna we are probably the biggest that isn't a governmentally funded or supported museum, right? So the, the Smithsonian obviously has a huge collection. There's European collections that have huge numbers of, of aircraft. Um but we are we are the largest sort of privately yeah, I hate to say privately because it suggests that we, you know, have it made in terms of finance because we don't. We're, you know, we're we're a small business like anybody other. We rely on on gate traffic, uh, special events, donations, gift shop sales, people buying lunch in the in the in the cafe. Um, you know, so we're sort of independently we're, we're we're the largest independent aviation museum in the world, and currently. On display, we've got roughly 425 aircraft, probably another dozen or so back in storage or on the way, Um, more in the pipeline. Uh, We've been incredibly fortunate. It's tapped into an innate ability that I have where I can leverage all sorts of deal-making, much like Radar O'Reilly and MASH, and results in all sorts of really interesting stuff coming our way. Um, My wife complains that I'm fundamentally unable to do that with our personal finances but uh you know <laughs> you, you play to your strengths right so but uh yeah so it, it's 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 been fun you know because we we're not we're not restricted by any particular mandate, right? So like the RAF museum is focused on the, the history of, of the RAF quite rightly. So same with the, you know, the, the Navy museums or various other service museums, we're, you know, the hard lock, the hard rock cafe of, of airplanes, you know, love all fly all, right? if it flies, it fits, right. You know, there's, um, there's really no reason that if we don't have it and we have the opportunity to get it, that we can't do it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously, we don't take everything that comes our way we're not a you know we're not a we're not a goodwill or a Salvation Army type of you know recycling shop but um, uh, you know we periodically turn down stuff but um you know largely speaking you know if if logistically we can manage it um, you know we we try to make the effort so you know we we run the gamut and we've got probably the largest single point, uh, commercial airliner collection of anywhere. We have the most helicopters of any museum outside of a couple of dedicated vertical flight museums. Um, we have the largest NASA aircraft collection. We have one of the few aerial firefighting collections around. And in the last 10 or 15 years, we've been able to go from having comparatively few Operational and combat type World War II aircraft to having basically the complete set of American stuff, um barring a Hellcat. Um
2: if, any, if anybody's I mean, listening, I now know a man who is in need of a Hellcat. So get in touch with Scott.
3: Yes, yes, please do. <laughs> yeah. It, I
2: yeah. I I was I was going through the list and oh. the the list on the website is is just a it's a wonderful list and I'm very jealous and I'm regretting not coming to visit.
3: It's a lot of fun. You know, I get to meet a lot of interesting people. I've made a lot of really spectacular friends in, 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 in the course of doing this. I've got great colleagues at other museums. It's, um, it's, it's been a wonderful life so far. And I, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate to have had the opportunity and I've, got great organizational support i've got you know a, a board that believes in my vision and donors that support it and uh, i've got terrific staff and and you know wonderful volunteers and uh, you know and a, and a really eccentric community i mean what more could you want
2: it's wonderful scott i have to ask snakes hmm. snakes uh, how you got a lot of aircraft outside that yeah. must make lo- lovely homes, for- and I—I I don't like snakes. So if, if mm. I'm going to come, I need—I need to get the gen on this. What's the deal with snakes? Well, no snakes on planes, but we have snakes
3: under planes. Um, it's a, <laughs> so, Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I understand that, you know, because it was. It takes a little bit of adjusting, you know. You certainly change your 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 way of behavior uh, when you move down to the desert. Um, it's surprisingly lush and robust. There's there's lots of crazy stuff here, and I've been you know we I've encountered a lot of it, both at my home and here at work. But you know, we we do get rattlesnakes around, but fortunately, they tend to be nocturnal. If you're going to run into them, it's usually in the morning when we've run into them and it's usually in the spring when they're coming out of their, their dormant period. And in the fall, when they're, they're feeding up before going dormant again, they're, you know, they're, they're chasing heat Uh, a couple of times um, in the, well, a couple of times in the men's restroom here in in my office building, we've, we've come in there and there's been a couple of uh, fairly sizable rattlesnakes curled up in the corner. Um, They end up up against the wheels of the tires uh, because they, they, preserve the heat there um they'll get under the the flap into the gift shop so yeah they they definitely turn up but um our our maintenance guys are are pretty pretty slick at uh, we've got we've got snake poles and buckets and they're pretty quick at uh, getting them and, and relocating them somewhere safe because they're you know um you don't want to get bitten by one but they're great to have around because they you know they keep the you know the mice and the rodents down and uh you know they're all they're all part of our big happy family <laughs>
2: cafe yeah I'm, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you, you handled them well so yep. how, how, how have you guys done through this rather ridiculous last year
3: yeah well you know like everybody else covid uh, came on hard and fast and mercilessly and we um, we were closed completely for about three months um, we've been back in limited operation since uh, June of 2020 fortunately um, our community here in Tucson you know, responsibly managed COVID not as good as some places, but better than a lot. But we saw oh, we saw a loss of about two and a half million dollars worth of revenue. I mean it was uh not pretty. Um you know, fortunately we were eligible for some uh, federal um uh, support programs, and uh, we had a couple donors that uh, stepped up and, and and kept us secure. But of course, you know we, you know we shed staff, we had to curtail operations, and we had to implement a lot of procedures to to protect both our staff and guests and, and the general public, so we could keep doing what we're doing. And we've been able to, um, you know, ride our way through it fairly well. And as things are starting to relax a little bit over here, um, we're, we're we're doing quite well. Um, You know it's it's perverse you know because people can't really leave the country effectively to do their overseas vacations you know they're you know they're they're still crazy they're stuck there's a lot of domestic travel and we're seeing a um you know about 40 percent of our traffic comes from california so now that california loosened up in february and it was basically going to no restrictions i think in the next week or two uh we're seeing huge influx of visitors from california and texas and 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 in the region um we're looking forward to having our, our foreign visitors back. We've, we've had a really, you know, we have a really terrific fan base in the UK and in continental Europe, you know, Australia, New Zealand, South America, um, a lot of very dedicated, passionate aviation enthusiasts. Um, you know, we're kind of a pilgrimage site, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny, the, the further away you go from Tucson, the bigger our brand and reputation gets, you know, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's all good, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's worth the, it's worth the trip if you could make it. I mean, in all honestly, and it's it's not an expensive day, and um, we've got terrific people. You'll have a really you'll have a really fun time if you if you get a chance to come here.
2: I you, I I always say Pem is a bucket list place to oh. to visit, and I like I said I I stupidly. Yeah, we'll be here when you're when you're ready, that. <laughs> I shot 102 rounds, Scottsdale. So yeah. that's that's not nothing yeah. I've now Put that on a podcast. So it's yeah, it's stupid. I should have come and visited you. Great, Scott. This has been so much fun. It's great to hear that things are opening up in the museums, getting getting going the way it should be again. Um, yeah. If if anyone wants to find out any more about the museum and the work you're doing, where should they go?
3: Uh, we are on Facebook at Pima Air and Space Museum. Where there's the official site that has our, our logo on it. There's a couple of fan sites, so just you know, watch where you click. Nothing wrong with clicking on both, but don't miss one for the other. Uh, our website's www.pimaair.org. Our sister museum's the Titan Missile Museum.org, which is again fascinating thing. One of the only preserved Titan II ICBM silo complexes in the world. So. Lots to go. we got lots of exciting stuff in the pipeline for, for the coming years. Here we are. We're open 363 days a year, close Thanksgiving and Christmas. But otherwise,
2: we're here for you. And the sun's always shining. <laughs> it is. <laughs> God. <laughs> Scott, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. In 2020, when the boss ladies, Alex and Alina, started History Hack, the world was very strange. And unfortunately, it looks like 2021 is going to be equally strange. We would love it if you're able to support the podcast in any way. It will allow us to keep up the regularity of the pods and also the great guests that we've been able to bring you over the last year. We exist on Patreon as History Hack and also on Podbean, our podcast host's own platform called Patreon. The reward tiers are being updated at the moment, so there's going to be some fantastic options for you to choose from. So if you're able to support us, that would be fantastic. So we thank you very much, and until the next time.